anyone who falls in love with any of those two tends to make the same mistake that they fall in love with it because of what it is because of the fact that you know we talk about cultures coming together and uh, fostering understanding and making the world a better place and, and that's great and nice but i've yet to meet a client that employs us to make the world a better place or foster understanding hello and welcome to an episode of promote the hell out of it my name is misael trujillo and this is the podcast where I talk to experts about subjects I'd like to understand and hopefully we all want to find out more about. And today I talk to Dr. Jonathan Downey. He is a French to English and English to French conference interpreter and the owner of Integrity Languages, which provides interpreting services and consultations to companies of all sizes. But to leave it there is a complete understatement because he is also one of the hosts of Troubles and Terps, a podcast about interpreting, and they've actually just done an episode live in Geneva for the 100 years of conference interpreting, where they were actually invited to host the closing down town hall conference, um, the part of the discussion there, and that's really cool. And he's got a book coming out, so yeah, definitely busy, a book coming out which sounds amazing, called interpreters versus machines which looks at ai and interpreters and a bunch of other stuff so this conversation is really interesting we talk about the skill sets needed to be an interpreter the difficulties they face we talk about ai we talk about the recent scandal uh, that donald trump's interpreter had and she's been all over the news about whether she was pulling funny faces at what he was saying or whether she was just concentrating it's all really interesting i really do hope you enjoy it and if you've been listening to the last few episodes, you know that we are currently sponsored by NextStand, our friends who provide highly adjustable and portable laptop stands, which have been helping my posture out and I use loads, they're really useful. And I promised you a competition this week. And on this episode, if you've listened to it, you can enter it before anyone else. It's going live tomorrow on social media accounts. But if you tag us in into any of the social media accounts with your favorite episodes so far you can stand the chance of winning some next stand goodies so yeah head over to our social media accounts tomorrow or share your favorite episode and tag us in tonight and uh you stand the chance of winning some goodies and without any further ado here is the new episode So I'm really excited to talk about this because I actually had uh, some experience whilst growing up. Uh, my parents are quite religious and I had to translate public talks from Spanish to English and it was one of the most frightening things I've ever had to do. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I cut my teeth as an interpreter in church interpreting. Oh, wow. So my dad spoke French, German, Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, um, I grew up in a family where internet, being international was normal. So everyone else had, you know, football players, posters on their bedroom wall. I had a world map on my bedroom wall. Um, my mum and dad had an open house. So we had everything from missionaries to drunks to preachers all, through the house for dinner and stuff. So so I, I'd seen a lot of, of stuff. And I was, a, so from about eight years old, my dad started introducing languages to the house and I learned little bits of French. And then when I was about, oh, 13, 14, I think it was, I went on a, a trip to Germany because I, I grew up wanting to be like a football manager like anyone else. But at one point I launched onto this idea of being a missionary or being a preacher. So I go to this Christian youth camp in Germany 
and there was this guy preaching, doing a really good job. And on one side of him was someone turning his words into German, and on the other side was someone turning his, his words into French. Now, that's not, not normally how interpreting into two languages works. But I saw these people doing that, and from that instant, I just fell in love with interpreting. And then years later, I've always wanted to say years later, um, after my third year undergraduate, I go out for my year abroad, which is pretty normal in, in language degrees. And I'm in a, a town in France called Dunkirk, and I'd interpreted a little bit in the streets of Brighton because our church had its European HQ in Brighton. So I'd interpreted for like 10 minutes this guy sharing how he became a Christian, which was great, you know, 200 young people, anyone walking down the street. But then in the November of me being in France, they said to me, well, you speak good French and you seem to be excited about this stuff. Would you like to interpret at the youth conference here? So my first ever conference, I did all of the French to English interpreting at a conference in Dunkirk in the far north of France with about 100 odd young people there in the room. And it was absolutely mental. But from that moment, despite the fact that I've still got the CDs of it somewhere and it's cringeworthy to hear my mistakes but from that moment I thought this is what I want to do and and it's amazing how when you set your mind to this is what I want to do you start realizing that your excitement for one thing opens the door to a whole load of other things as well it's been an incredible journey since then of course and and you learn so much from those experiences you mentioned some of those early mistakes what what do you think are the most common early mistakes that that people make and, and that you maybe made so um, there's two kinds of mistakes as an interpreter. There's kind of mistakes that you make when you're interpreting. So the French word for growth and belief, similar enough that you can mix them up. And yes, I did the first time I got there. <laughs> um, my worst ever French mistake was mixing up my words and pronunciation. And instead of saying to the class that I was teaching, I like French people a lot, I said, I like beautiful French backsides. But I think the as an interpreter, kind of career-wise, I think the mistake that I made that lots of people make is that people who fall in love with interpreting or translation, so interpreting is anything between two spoken or signed languages and translation is written. Anyone who falls in love with any of those two tends to make the same mistake that they fall in love with it because of what it is, because of the fact that, you know, we talk about cultures coming together and uh, fostering understanding and making the world a better place. And, and that's great and nice but I've yet to meet a client that employs us to make the world a better place or foster understanding. They employ us because they've got a job to do. They've got, you know, someone sick and needs to see the doctor. Uh, there's a conference going on and they need everyone to understand. And the mistake that I made for the longest time in my career is focusing on the lovely, cultural, fluffy side of interpreting and not realizing that, especially if you work in the commercial world, it's quite hard-nosed. What's the return on investment? What's this interpreting going to do for me? Yeah, and yeah. that it, you'd be surprised at how long it took for me to go from enthusiastic, fluffy culture person to hold on a minute. I've got a business to run, and the only people who are going to buy this are people who are convinced it's worthwhile. Of course, and can I ask you how do you draw the line there between not losing who you are and your your ethics when it comes to that, and not becoming cynical because of the type of work you're you're maybe having to do or, or going for. Well, there's a couple of things going on there. So um, as a Christian, I firmly believe that no matter what work I'm doing, I have to be doing it excellently. I have to be doing it to the best of my ability. And also, there's nothing wrong with businesses making more money because when businesses make more money, they can employ more people and they can improve the local economy. 
And I think if we're afraid of the side of interpreting that does make businesses more money or gets people more effective treatment or allows justice to be served, which saves the justice system money, if we're afraid of the money and finance side of interpreting, I think it's, it means that we've got a bad attitude to finance. Um, growing, healthy growing businesses, not businesses that grow like unicorns and just wreck entire countries, we all know the kind, but healthy growing businesses that, you know, you might interpret for and because of your interpreting, they've suddenly, there was one business I interpreted for a couple of years ago, because of the interpreting I did, they were able to sign on a pre-contract, which meant that they were going to get a deal worth multi-million pounds. For that company, that meant their staff were going to have more secure jobs, were going to hire more staff, they were going to be able to train more staff. They were going to have far more secure supply lines. They were going to be able to negotiate better with their suppliers. The area that they were in is going to benefit because obviously if more staff are going to work in that factory, then all the shops around to get more people buying lunch. And that kind of stuff is good. Um, and I'm while I'm still, I still love the kind of cultural stuff, I'm now falling in love more with the physical, economic, difference that interpreting makes to people's lives and when you see the look on someone on on a chief executive's face that his company now have a contract that's securing their future that's worth it that's amazing yeah that's amazing and that's the kind of things you need to, to focus on to keep that passion going um, and i want to talk about this the scaling up from being uh, an interpreter yourself uh, French to English and English to French to scaling up to integrity languages what made you decide to do that and, and how was that experience? So integrity languages has always been my trading name even as a freelancer because I felt myself at the time that there's an area of professionalism that comes when you have an entity name above you um, I myself feel more comfortable like say if I'm going into a shop um, if a shop's just one guy and it looks like you know someone's house then I sometimes feel less comfortable. So if you're getting someone in to do something in your house, getting Joe Blogs in feels different to getting such and such limited in. 100%. Yeah. Um, so that there was an area of professionalism that I wanted to give. And then what happened is I did my PhD, graduated in 2016. And as I say in my, my new book, which is coming out in December, it's called Interpreters versus Machines. I had this realization when I graduated that it had been six months since my agency clients had sent me any work for various reasons um, and even the work that had been sent for for a decent period before then hadn't really been suitable either the rates had been too low or it had been work that I couldn't do or the work had been cancelled in the, uh, at the last minute and as I walk up the stage to in my kind of lovely pink fuchsia gown to get hit over the head and receive my diploma I realised that if I'm going to survive I'm going to have to change how I do work. And my PhD was in what people expect of interpreters and how um, organisational expectations of interpreting shape the interpreting that the organisation gets. So I, I walk up that stage and I realise, well, if I'm going to make this work, if I'm going to still be an interpreter, the only choice in my market and with the, the contacts that I have is to become what's called a consultant interpreter. And a consultant interpreter is someone who classically... The other person the clients can call and they can, you know, just set up six languages at once and talk to the, the tech people. Fine. That's a good thing to do. And they might give clients advice on, you know, make sure the boot, the interpreting booths are in the same room as everyone else and so on. And that level of advice, the kind of setup advice is great. But I realized that where there was a gap and where there still is a gap is people who are brave enough to sit with clients six months 
before the interpreting's coming and say, okay, so what's your rationale for doing this? What, which, where does this come in your strategy? What's your strategy for making all of your languages work? You know, it's one thing to put on a conference. It's another thing to have a website in the same language so people don't just come to the conference then buy stuff afterwards. Who's the person who's confident enough and knows enough to sit with the client and say, okay, you want to do a, a conference, that's great, but let's look at the wider picture of how this is working for you as a business. And from that moment on, that's that's what I started building. And, and yesterday I was at a, an event for businesses that want to go international and realizing even more that that's the level of service that companies really need because, you know, they can call us two weeks before and we'll turn up and do a job. But that, that job I mentioned earlier where the company had uh, signed on a multi-million pound deal, they almost lost that deal because they'd done stuff in-house they really should have gotten a professional to do. And so a lot of the issues were caused because no one had sat down with them and said, okay, you've got this, this thing from someone who wants to buy some of your, your goods that you're making. Let's look at how we process that. Let's look at the, the processes. Let's look at the thinking behind that so that when the interpreter actually comes in to do their job, everything's set for the, for the event to be a success. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and when, when you're working with interpreters, uh, your main goal is obviously to make that, that event a success. So what skill set are, are you looking for in interpreters? Well, I mean, as a rule, I always work with people who've got the right qualifications, obviously. So you have to take the, the language skills have to be there. Um, in my line of work, the qualifications have to be there, so the industry standard is a master's degree in, in interpreting. And even then, that's kind of like your, your entry level. Where, where I'm looking now is I need people who are flexible and calm. If someone's going to freak out because a speech got moved, then I can't work with them. I need someone who's able to not just deal with pressure, but thrive under pressure. So, for instance, if you've got um, a situation I had not so long ago, I was interpreting at the Scottish Parliament. There was a musician there who was being interviewed by the French Consul to Scotland. So you're talking quite high up people. I'm interpreting the French interview. The Chinese both are listening to my English and turning it into Chinese. The debating chamber is full of culture ministers, uh, visiting guests and the choir and some school kids. And the whole event is being live webcast on the Scottish Parliament website. So to be able to walk in, unfortunately I had a bad day at the office, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> but the, the pressure to be able to, the ability to walk into that kind of pressure and go, yeah, I can do this. Now, you might say that's a really high pressure situation, but if you've got, you know, um, the, the top conference of some association that only has one conference every year, and you're on the interpreting team, for that client, that's just as high pressure for them as it is if you're being live webcast from the Scottish Parliament. And you have to be able to, to turn that pressure into amazing work. So you need someone who's a good public speaker because even if you're in the booth, you're going to be acting like a public speaker. You need someone who doesn't just understand what's said, but why it's being said and who it's being said to. So they need to be able to understand audiences. And also, there are different types, even in conference interpreting, which is where I did most, where I did my training. Even in conferences, there's a difference between someone that I can send to a technical conference and someone that I can send to a press conference. 
Of course, yeah. And and I need to to know people well enough to know, okay, here's some conference on heavy engineering. Great, I'll send this team. Oh, here's this. I had one not so long ago. It was a, an under-20 rugby international. The kind of person who can do captain speeches might not be great at technical competencies, <laughs> but they can make a 20-year-old rugby captain sound good. And that's where you need the flexibility. That's where you... As a consultant interpreter, I need to know what not just what skill set of people got, but what approach have they got, what kind of mind have they got. And that takes it takes time. And so the skill set I look for for one job might be slightly different to another, but they have to be qualified. They have to, to know what they're doing. They have to be able to deal with pressure. Yeah, that's really interesting. And how about the the knowledge needed of the actual language? Because I find that there's still a difference between understanding a language and understanding its metaphors, understanding how to communicate concepts from one language to another. And and that's something that I found really difficult. I think that's the thing. So if someone's going through interpreter training, they will have dealt with a lot of that stuff. So to even get in the door of interpreter training, your language level is tested. Then once you're there, there's a lot of technique stuff and they deliberately throw things at you during your training which will make it difficult for you to interpret. So in French, for example, there are, they sometimes use what we call the conditional tense. So in English, it would be I would to actually be the English equivalent of allegedly. So you need to know when it means I would or they would, and it's actually meaning allegedly. So that kind of being able so there's a kind of interpreting called consecutive interpreting and there it involves taking notes on the structure of the speech in a very specific way and being able to to say it back once the speaker's finished so they do the whole speech you take special interpreter notes and then you give the whole speak speech back i would have preferred that 100 <laughs> percent i i can't i don't like it too much no okay yeah, fair but, enough but th- that way of doing it teaches you to watch for structure and it so it means things like the use of the French conditional to mean allegedly when you're doing consecutive you will catch that and it will be completely fine when you're simultaneous it can creep up on you but if you're trained in consecutive then you understand that you know what might seem like a difficult metaphor or a difficult term here you can sometimes put that on ice and come back to it in consecutive and so when you, when you come across that in simultaneous, you then have the thinking skills to go, well, I know what that metaphor means and I've got enough experience to turn it around. The annoying thing is, is you do get people who base entire speeches on metaphors and ideas <laughs> that simply don't work. So I had um, a friend, uh, an English speaker, sorry, I think it was South African maybe, doing a talk on the difference between uh, the Bible talking about blessed assurance versus blessed insurance. The problem is, Assurance and insurance in French are the same word. Ah, wonderful. (laughs) And I thought it was just a passing joke. So I just did the usual. There was no other way around that. I had to say, um, the speaker made a joke which doesn't translate very well into French. Please laugh. So the audience laughed dutifully. (laughs) And the entire talk is based off that metaphor. Pest. You just have to get back up and rephrase. And the difference between... A professional and an amateur as professionals, we're trained hard in coping techniques and techniques to make stuff work. And there are various strategies that we use, but that it comes down to what's going on in the event and how important it's going to be and how you recover and self-correction. And 
this is why we usually work in teams of two because you can help each other out with that. I've lost count of the number of times that my booth mates given me a solution for something that when you're actually interpreting can be really difficult to solve. That's amazing. That's really helpful. I didn't actually know that's how it worked. And it's, I think that's the kind of thing that is interesting for people to be aware of because sometimes we, we see these things in passing, especially with interpreters. Uh, it's something you see in passing but don't know very much about. So there's, we work in teams of two because after about half an hour, 40 minutes of simultaneous interpreting, your brain turns to fudge. <laughs> I can, <laughs> to, I can to relate it, to that. <laughs> to put it lightly. And so we'll swap over every half an hour or so. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Very rarely more, mostly less. Um, so I, I once interpreted for a French architect who was very philosophical and very heady, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it was such a difficult, tightly structured speech that with my boothmate we swapped over roughly every 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Because he was so difficult to to deal with that after 10 minutes he was he was exhausting us and also if you've got someone else in the booth someone else can be doing terminology research on their phone while you're interpreting or they can make sure the right paperwork is there so it's really about helping each other and it's the great thing about conference interpreting is that you help each other where i'm confused is that in most countries in medical and court interpreting which to me is even higher stakes yeah most medical and court interpreters would work on their own for long periods of time, which makes no sense to me. Oh, wow. Um, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But certainly in conference interpreting, the standard has been since the profession really existed 100 years ago. This year is our 100th anniversary of conference interpreting. Um, the, the, the idea has been to work in teams of two or more. Uh, in the big international institutions, they can have bigger teams. And that 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 covers you so much it helps so much uh, the only thing is is you get used to the fact that you're going to go to work you're going to be sitting in a small soundproof booth for seven and a half hours with someone so you really better learn how to get on with them <laughs> because you're stuck with them for seven and a half hours that must teach you a lot of people skills absolutely you must learn to have to deal with other people in, in close quarters quite well you also learn that if one of you wants to eat garlic you both have to eat garlic <laughs> It's garlic day today. <laughs> it's like, oh no, so, you know, often you'll get conferences with kind of buffet food and you'll have chats with each other going, tell you what, you can have the fish if I can have the really stinky cheese deal. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I wanted to touch on talking about skills that interpreters need. Uh, what is your view on interpreters needing to be invisible? Oh, lovely. <laughs> that's been a great topic at the moment. So recently there was uh, Donald Trump was meeting with the president of Italy and there was some fake news about his Italian interpreter who that's people it. were saying was pulling a face. <laughs> she wasn't. That's just what we look like when we concentrate, okay? <laughs> Please, like, anyone who takes photos of interpreters working, we're going to look a little bit like Gollum just because we're concentrating so hard. There was, there was a funny comment about that because... I read an article that said exactly the same thing and then just as an added bonus it said although a lot of interpreters we talked to did say that it would be difficult not to pull a face at some of those <laughs> sentences anyway. <laughs> um, so, so funnily enough one of my most recent academic papers was on interpreter invisibility. It's this is where I need to carefully choose my words as an interpreter. So for a, for a long time, and I'm practically quoting from chapter five of my new book now, for a long time, interpreter invisibility was deemed the norm. Because if you imagine that 
the first form of interpreting to professionalize in the modern world was conference interpreting for the diplomatic world. In fact, uh, where, uh, simultaneous interpreting was born in 1919 at the International Labour Organization, but it got its big kind of big break, if you like, at the Nuremberg War Trials in 45 and 46, 47, 1945-ish. And at that point, if you imagine you have the world's first big multilingual international legal trial, if anyone could say anything about the interpreting affecting the outcome of the trial, the, le the legitimacy of the trial would have been at risk. That makes absolute sense, yeah. So in that sense, and in the sense of saying, you know, all nations are equal when you start getting the big international organisations, which again, you think about the UN General Assembly, you think about the EU, they have this idea of every country gets an equal say and so on. For that to be ideologically true, it makes sense that in the early days of interpreting, this idea of the interpreter doesn't change anything, the interpreter says exactly what the speaker said, almost had to be the norm because of the political world around interpreting at the time. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you then go to the 1990s and you start people start doing what's called field research on interpreting. Research on interpreting started um, often in the laboratory with people going, how on earth did they do this? Because it didn't look like it should have been humanly possible. Mid Early to mid 1990s, people start doing field research, beginning with interpreting in police courts, medical settings. And what happened there is, as people started doing field research, they said, well, this is odd, especially in the sign language interpreting world, they said, this is odd. The norms and the, if you like, the PR says interpreters are invisible and they don't change anything. When we watch them at work and when we watch them in practice, we see them change stuff. And this was, you know, sign language interpreting was saying that, court interpreting was saying that. There was a very famous study of court interpreting by a lady called Susan Burke Selickson, who pointed out that if you use the exact same honorifics like sir, mister, um, that you have in Mexican Spanish when you're interpreting into English, people see the witnesses as untrustworthy. Okay, yeah. Because true. Latin uh, Mexican yeah. Spanish uses them differently to English. Absolutely. Uses them a lot more than English. Yeah. And so if you have an English-speaking jury and the interpreter's using all the sir, mams that you would get in Mexican Spanish, they think they're being obsequious and they don't trust them. So you then start, and that research goes on for a, a good kind of 10 years or so, and then 2004-ish, conference interpreting research starts catching up. Uh, Ebru Dericker, one of my favorite researchers, was a wonderful person to interview. There's an interview with her on my YouTube channel, Inside Interpreting. She writes a book um, based off her PhD thesis, uh, and she looked at conference interpreters who had all the qualifications and pointed out that they weren't behaving in the way that invisibility said they should. Then you get Morvan Beaton looking at interpreters in the European Union, in the European Parliament, I should say, finds exactly the same thing. And it became then Shahidar Aslan in 2011 finds the same thing in consecutive interpreting. And suddenly there becomes a realization in research that this invisibility thing is a myth. And the more we look at it, the more it becomes problematic because it assumes things like, as you were talking about before, languages use different metaphors. Well, the invisibility myth assumes that you can take things across from one language to the other and not make any changes. We so call it true. the conduit model. So true. Which anyone who speaks two languages can tell you, sometimes you're going to have to explain 
what such and such is. You know, if 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 I'm interpreting for someone from Scotland, and they start saying, you know, the atmosphere in here is a bit like an old firm game, I'm gonna have to explain in French what an old firm game is. It's when Celtic play Rangers, historic rivals. Um, I wouldn't do the whole religious side behind it, but I would have to say something like, um, the atmosphere here is like a football game where two rivals are playing. Or like a tense football match. I couldn't say an old firm game because no one would know what it was. And that, that then people start realising, well, okay, we need to change our model of interpreting. So interpreters have always been visible. We've not always been happy to acknowledge that. It's only in the past, I would say the past two years or so, that it's become more of a more normal for interpreters to stand up and, and say, yes, I'm visible, I make a difference. That's what I do for a living. Um, thanks to the work of a lot of people, guys like Alexander Drexel, who co-hosts a podcast with me, Elisabeth Teselius, a researcher from Sweden, Ebru Dericker. When the researchers, who are also practitioners, and most of our researchers are practitioners, when the practitioner researchers stood up and said, look, this is happening, and when we started training interpreters to realize we can't be visible, we have to, you know, think through how to do this, then suddenly it becomes okay. And people say, you know, we're not there to take center stage, we're not there to take over, but our presence makes a difference because if there's no interpreter there, people can't understand. Of course. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because actually having the, the standard as the interpreter being invisible puts them in, in quite a a difficult situation because then they do all this excellent work and the only time any attention is actually going to be given to them is basically if they make a huge mistake as in the case with with this Intel Italian interpreter for example and she didn't actually make a mistake I know exactly <laughs> yeah that's the thing <laughs> but yeah, so there, there's the classic line that if your meetings going bad blame the interpreters and everyone can go home yeah happy. yeah um, so yeah, it, it puts interpreters in a couple of impossible positions. One, it, for, it tells people that we're doing something which is physically impossible to do. Uh, conduit model interpreting, you know, just say exactly what the person said. We call it the conduit model. It's linguistically impossible. And as soon as we can admit that in public, one of the first videos I ever did on YouTube was admitting that the conduit model was impossible because until we start from there, we can't go anywhere else. The, the other problem with invisibility, and this is, this is like the baseline for my new book, is if we tell people that we just say what the speaker said, if our main skill is being invisible, then we're saying to people implicitly, replace this with machines as soon as you can. Because we're not adding anything that you can't get out of Google Translate. That's so true. And, and I also think just uh, the, the day and age we live in, it's not something that goes well with what, especially the next generation of being taught from a young age. We, we live in an age of continuous self-promotion, uh, social media, like it, it's quite contrary to, to everything that is developing in our society, I'd say. Well, this is an interesting one. So there are two cam two social media campaigns going on in interpreting at the moment, uh, both based around the interpreting hashtag, which is one hashtag one NT. Don't know who invented it. It's been going forever. So there's the one NT hush campaign uh, started by a guy called Hugo, Hugo Menendez. And the idea there being that we don't want interpreters to be sharing what we call privileged information. So no one has any right to know if I've just, you know, been to an event no one has any right to know what the financial performance of that company is until they release it publicly themselves. Yeah. 
we that should not sense. be doing insider that trading. We, sh we shouldn't be spreading rumors. Great. You'd be amazed at how much people can give away by accidentally taking a photograph of where they are. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a fantastic campaign about called 1NT Hush and the idea there being be careful what you put on social media, be creative and make sure you don't give anything away. That's fantastic. On the other hand, I invented a campaign probably around the same time called Visible 1NT saying to interpreters, you know, if you go onto the average interpreter website, we're all like, you know, 100% accurate, master's degree and da da da. And I said to people, what about saying anonymously, of course, so that no one can trace back who you're working for, the difference that you make. And actually the two campaigns mesh really well together because one NT hush tells us to be wise and make sure we don't give away any privileged information, then we don't breach confidentiality. Visible one NT is saying, without breaching confidentiality, without giving stuff away, share the kinds of things that you do that make a difference to the world. And when you get that balance right, something happens. When you get that balance right, suddenly people stand up and take notice. And actually, it opens up conversations with people that you wouldn't have had before. So just, true. Just being able to say something. You know, someone talks about their business wanting to go international. You can share, I can now share stories with people and say, you know, I've been in the situations with the negotiation. I can't, you know, I can interpret for you, but I can also give you pointers from the negotiations that I've been in as an interpreter, having the privilege of watching while I'm working. And it is that balance that I think applies to everyone. I think a lot of people could do with putting uh, less personal information sometimes and not giving so much away uh, on a public forum where it's there for forevermore and evergreen content. Uh, and on the other hand, a lot of people do not know how to, to shout about what they do and, and to tell people what they're good at doing. And finding that balance can really help people connect and find new opportunities. Well, there's an interesting, something interesting that I've found, and this goes, runs counter to a lot of the social media advice. I find that my social media campaigns are more effective and I get more likes and retweets on posts and more interaction when I leave the house. So yesterday I was at an event run by an organization called Scottish Business Network and they were talking about businesses who want to go international. So I do the millennial thing, although I hate the word millennial because it has no basic use. Uh, I did the classic millennial thing of I'm going to live tweet this and I'm going to take some photos and put them on Twitter and you get the odd bit of retweets you know people see stuff that they like they retweet it obviously speakers like to kind of like tweets that they're mentioned and it's great and then while I'm live tweeting at the event they come to the end of one of the panels and they say does anyone have any questions I I'm one of these people I've always got my hand up before anyone else. And I was the, the guy in school who the teacher would say, anyone but Jonathan, okay? Just, <laughs> does anyone else want to answer? So I put my hand up and I ask a question about languages and we discuss the importance of languages for companies that want to export. We hit tea break and this guy makes a beeline for me, taps me on the shoulder and says, are you the languages guy? I said, yeah. He said, the stuff that you were talking about and what you do can solve the problem for the companies I work with. Can we have a coffee? And suddenly now I can, so then I wrote about the event this morning, put the blog on, and the people who organized the event went, that's great, and started retweeting my blog. And so the problem that we have with social media is we think that social media is the thing. Social media is not the thing. Social media is the, it, the best that social media can do is multiplying your, your work elsewhere unless you're trying to be a marketer or unless your business is social media marketing people will like you a lot more if they meet you in person 
and get to know you than if you're kind of doing a three month Hootsuite campaign. Yeah, of course. Of course, and even even with social media marketing, which is something I do for work, I'd still say that people are still attracted to the personality. Uh, obviously, previous campaign experience is is the main the main thing and is important. Uh, but for example, something that I always remind clients is that people who do social media as their main work, job don't necessarily have to be focusing and spending their time on their own personal social media because why would they they're helping other people improve theirs yeah like at the end of my work day the last thing i want to do is work on my social media i want to work on my client's social media to, to earn money um and i'd much rather show them a portfolio of good work than show them my own personal media account because that's for my friends i think the other thing is is i i, I like having a laugh with seo specialists because every time I get the business card of an SEO specialist, I say, I say to them, so um, where'd you rank on Google? And they just give me these <laughs> eyes. And it's like, well, you know, doctor, make yourself well kind of thing. But this is the, this is the thing is, you know, we can get so good at go doing stuff for other people um, that, that we can end up not doing it ourselves. And it, it's the classic thing, you know, interpreters are communication specialists. And sometimes we need to work on our own communication. I know myself, I, I keep... There's a cracker of an example in, in, in my book. The, the first business website that I ever made, I made it on a WordPress free website with this theme that looked more like it was suitable for someone advertising a cemetery. It's kind of like all blacks and greys because I thought, you know, Battleship Grey was somehow a professional colour. Uh, because I had written an, a website in Barry HTML before, I'd never managed to use CSS because who understands CSS? You know, I did my first website in WordPress set it up and I found it on, on the Wayback Machine on Internet Archive. Okay. And, and I put a link to the, the archive version in the book and went, look at how bad this was. You know, I'm a communication specialist and the front page, I kid you not, was welcome to the Integrity Languages website where you will find information on Integrity Languages. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, going to really yeah. pull, pull people in. But that, you know, if you look at my early blog posts, they're all horrid because you you get so good at doing stuff for other people and then you know that the hardest question to ask someone who runs a business is you know if you could describe what your business does for people in a sentence what would it be and every business owner just stares at you yeah it's so and true that's, that's why you need a specialist to sit down and say okay what kind of clients do you work with what difference do you make with them um you know how are they feeling before and after they work with you I, I, I make social media marketing people laugh because they say, you know, who are your target clients? And I say, I love people who are really nervous. <laughs> and they look at me like, but that's not got a Facebook ad filter. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, the sweatier their palms, the happier I am. <laughs> and it's like, because people who, who just say, can you do it like we had last, last year? It's not the easiest. But people who say, you know, I've got this thing coming up. It has to work. Can you get me a team that you know will, will deliver and will deliver great results? That's the kind of client I want. Not the ones who are like, yeah, we, we do this every year. Just send us anyone. It's really true. And it's something that I always encourage people to do. It's, it's again, about finding balance. Even if you don't have the time to, to spend on doing things, it still needs to look professional. It needs to sell who you are. And you mentioned like like the website. That's something that that a lot of people tend to forget is so important and kind of leave on a back burner. And then you go on the website when you're researching them, and all the details are ten years out of date. And you're like, <laughs> why have they done this? 
Like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> or, or it's a website that's built in Flash and now all the browsers yeah, oh, are stopping yeah. support. But even one of the basic mistakes that I have now, and this is like a, sounds like a super technical thing, but it shocks me how many business websites are now not HTTPS. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's like, that's now becoming, you know, with Chrome, I think, basically blocking uh, bare HTTP websites. If you don't do that in the next, what, six months, your website is just going to fall off the internet. And But then again, it's it's these basic things. So when, we, when I work with interpreting clients, I send them a form to fill out which is called a, a standard brief. It's a one-page brief just to tell us everything we need to know so that we can do the job. And s you'd be surprised at the number of people who send back a brief when I say to them, please answer every question, please answer <laughs> every question. And the question that is often left unanswered is, what is the purpose of this event? Seriously, that should be the main question. <laughs> Come on. Often I get, why do you need to know that? <laughs> They're quite happy to tell me the audience, although usually in quite general terms, you know, it's like doctors or salespeople. And it's like, no, 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 I need more detail than that. Um, but when you ask them the purpose of the event, they'll either just give you the title, it's like, seriously, or they'll just say to tell people information. It's like, no, 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 you're not spending tens of thousands of pounds on a conference to give people information. You would have sent them a fact sheet. You know, wh why is this? And that's... That's the kind of information that actually determines who you send. If it is just, okay, we've decided to call this event because we're giving people a, a briefing on such and such, then I'll send you a different team if you say, we're giving people this information and we're expecting a mad discussion, then I'll give you someone else. It's true. It's true. And But I think that a lot of people make the mistake of, of spending a lot of, of money hiring experts and not understanding how important integrating them into their systems are and that goes for for yeah. any job really the amount of times we've got paid to do people's social media and then they'll they'll set up they'll renovate for example all their their new restaurant and not check with us whether to put the social media handles on the menu <laughs> like seriously you've you go to the restaurant and there's no nothing to mention social media anywhere and then they're messaging you going why why are we getting no one tweeting about us like you're yeah, not telling people and you've paid us thousands of pounds to give you a strategy and then not asked us like and not checked it at all but i'm surprised at how many people do stuff without a strategy it's true so i sat down recently my, my numbers were down you know everyone should keep an eye on their figures even people who don't like figures should keep an eye on their figures my numbers were down and i thought what am i going to do you know old me eight nine years ago me would have just gone in a panic and you know started eating cake, cake or something which I'm sure everyone who's run a business has had that panicking, I'm just gonna empty the fridge feeling at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. And so can eight, year old, eight, eight years ago, me would have done that. And I thought, no, I know better than this. There's a book by a guy called Tim Redmond called Power to Create. Brilliant, brilliant book. I would check that out. And I thought, okay, so he, he talks about stories from all over the world about people who, where other, his, his view is that um, business is not about making money, it's about adding value because money follows value. Yeah, it's true. And so he said, and he, he gives, gives these examples from all over the world, you know, like a mum who had no schooling, no skills, needed to look after her kids or didn't look like any jobs. The only thing she knew, how to, knew what to do was sell pancakes. So she realises that you've got all of these people going to work in some big place. She's just going to sit outside with a like a thing and just make pancakes and sell <laughs> them to people. Amazing. And from that, she starts building a business. And he said, you know, some people look at difficulties and go, 
that and then panic and other people he said do what's called brooding over them you look at the difficulties and you say this difficulty points to an opportunity so i looked at my numbers and i thought they're, they're down this this isn't what where i want to be so i go well what's the way out i start praying and i go no there's a strategy in this um, you know, I, I did the feeling down thing for a couple of minutes. I went out to, to buy some go uh, buy some milk or something on the way. I start praying and I realised, no, actually there's a there, there's an opportunity in this. I now have more time than than I than I had when I'm busy. Okay, we'll see it as I've got more time. What have I got time to do? I've got time to write our sales and marketing strategy. So I sit down at the computer. I had worked, I've talked to enough business consultants that I know how this works. And I go, okay, let's pick a year's time because a year's a nice period to work with. And I work back, would I want, where do I want to be in a year's time? And now the, the best research at the moment is suggesting don't write your strategy in terms of sales figures or in terms of revenue projections and stuff because um, there's a guy called Ewan Mingus who was on the podcast. He does um, really amazing strategy planning with businesses. And he says that when you when people plan in terms of figures, they tend to produce the wrong behavior. So if your planning is based on sales numbers, you'll take on clients you would not normally take on just to get your sales numbers up. It's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So instead, he, he says, you know, think about events. What is your, they have a whole Concord planning system, it's called, what's your recognition event that you'll know that you are where you wanted to be? So I write down, okay, here's where I want to be. How will I know what that looks like? Okay, I've got my recognition event and I backwards plan from there to, well, if I want to be so in a year's time, I want the default in Scotland to be that instead of people looking for agencies for interpreting, they come to consultants. And that the consultants, when necessary, send work to the agencies and not vice versa. And so I start writing down things like that. You know, how will I know that's been the case? What will be the indicators? that that's happened right okay da, 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 da. and then start going well if if these are the indicators that i want to have happened in a year's time what has to happen immediately before that okay i write that down and work it until i get to where what do i need to be doing today what do i need to be doing this week and that takes if you've never done it before and you're not familiar with that methodology it takes ages because you'll you'll, you'll have gaps in places you know you have like three stages to get where you want to be in a year when the reality is for most of us it's going to be 14 15. <laughs> yeah you'll go you know uh, i want to be Typical. <laughs> I, I i want to to be retired on, and on my boat by next year great okay <laughs> so the, the next thing i need to do is get a client worth a thousand pounds no you know, kind of let, let, let's break this down. You know, a single £1,000 client is not going to buy your boat. Yes, that may be your next stage, but how are you going to get even to there? You know, where does your next client come from? And you start doing that and you start realizing that when you have a strategy in place and you can tick off stuff. So I've already ticked off stuff from that strategy. Yeah, I've done this. I've done this. I'm on my way to doing that. That feeling shows you that you're on the right track. And then you can adjust as you go because you'll say, okay, I thought that was going to be the next stage. It doesn't work. And you meet people that you wouldn't have met. And the dangerous, the most dangerous place that I find in business is not when you're struggling, because when you're struggling, once you get over the empty the fridge into your mouth stage, you usually do something. You People tend to be active when they're struggling. It's when you're cruising, when you've got work coming in, when you've got you know three or four offers for the same day that you can't take up. That's when it gets dangerous. It's true. The, the worst dead end is the one that you create yourself because you're stuck there and you're not moving anywhere. If you're moving forward, you can hit a wall, but you know to turn back and, and go another route. And yeah. there's nothing worse than, than just 
being stuck in the same in the same stage. I was cruising once. Um, this is a story that I very rarely tell because it, people very rarely talk about that stuff. But I was cruising once. I had a client who looked pretty good. I had kind of three or four clients. I was translating then rather than interpreting because there wasn't any interpreting work at that point. So I've got three or four translation clients and one of them sends me a job. We end up working through the night. Not ideal. It was a job that, that was not a good job. And suddenly I sit down and have a realization that my best client at the time, the way that I was calculating prices and the way that they were actually being paid, it turned out that I was underselling myself massively. And then the main client, because of whom I was cruising, started getting later and later with payments. <laughs> I know now that the story. Problem is, is because I'd had a, a kind of three or four clients and I'd had enough work to keep going, I hadn't thought about winning more and I thought the hard work was done. And then I had this the scariest realization ever where I had these three or four clients, I'd won them using a certain method, and I realized that three out of the four were the kind of clients that all of the experts were saying you should sack. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was paying later and later. One of them I had to sack because the client was paying so late. It literally was was costing me the equivalent of an extra day per invoice to chase. You know, if you count all the chasing emails and all the stress, I thought, I can't be doing this anymore. Uh, one client became more sporadic, and I thought, what do I do? But I only knew one way of winning clients. So I go back to the same way, not realizing that I'm feeding an unhealthy pattern. Yeah. You know, if the way that you've won clients so far has won you bad clients, use a different way to win your clients. But for a while, I didn't have any other tools but those ones, so I kept either not winning clients at all or winning clients who weren't great. And that's when that that's why it's so dangerous to cruise because you you don't want to see you you don't want your eyes to wake up to the fact that you know your number one client is not good for you or the work that you're doing you're only doing because you get paid, you don't enjoy it. You're waking up in the morning saying, "Oh, I wish I didn't have that job to do." Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something I can I can definitely relate to. I think it's it's pretty difficult. Uh some, especially when you work for yourself, there's there's always the struggle of of getting clients that that you like and you're happy with uh, and then getting the ones that pay the bills and you're trying to get rid of them constantly for the other ones. But then when you've got the other ones, as you say you start cruising or not necessarily cruising because it's also then the, the question of how much work do I want to take on for a, for a family life balance, for example. Do I now want to start taking extra the extra effort of hiring staff, for example? Yeah. So it's this huge dilemma of, of balancing how much money you need coming in with the kind of clients that you actually want to be having and that respect the work that you do. And it's also perfectly normal, especially, I mean, some businesses are subscription model based and they are, you know what your cash flow looks like for the next three years, that's great. All, you know, I'm not in a business which easily becomes subscription based. Yeah. And so to, to say to people, it's normal if you run a business that your cash flow can look crazy sometimes, that's fine. What's not fine is realizing that you're, that, that, that you're not managing. You know, there are some people who run businesses who I'm sorry, really should be going and getting a, a, a staff job because they'll be happier when someone else is in charge of, of winning the sales. That's the thing. There, there are other people who are who have, have got businesses who are doing well, but 
there are people who wake up, and I've been there myself. You wake up in the morning, and if you, if the first words you think in your head your head are, "I would much rather be doing whatever," then something wrong. Yeah, I always say this to people, and I think it, that's becoming more and more common in the society we live because it seems like this great idea to work for yourself. I've worked for myself from the age of sixteen when I had a window cleaning round. And I always say to people, you need to be completely prepared for for the hustle that comes with that, for needing to to resolve situations, for clients cancelling last minute, and being willing to to find a solution for the for the cash flow. And some people just do not like that aspect of it, but love the idea of being able to work from home. And those two things don't always go well together. Well, I, I will say one thing, and I know we're running over time here. I will say one thing, and that is that one of the greatest things that I've begun to build in the business is I wrote, I've written one book. There's a, a second book that, I'm ju- that is written. It's just going through the processes coming out in December. And while the, the royalties are not, you know, buy a car, they're like a couple hundred quid a, a year at the moment, but I know there's cash coming in every yeah. year yeah. that I don't have to win a client to get. It's so true. Yeah, it's passive, so true. Passive income is incredible. And if, now it's easy for business, I did it the wrong way once. I tried to launch a public speaking course realized that actually that wasn't gonna sell well for various reasons and you know the kind of sell online courses thing has never really been me it's okay to fail that's totally fine exactly um but thinking about is there something that i can do maybe someone's got a social media business and actually the best thing for them to do is to say to clients you can purchase um credits or something or you can purchase a monthly plan that's amazing if your business if your main business doesn't suit a subscription model, then look at, is there some way that you can get passive income? Do you need to put some money into bonds that pay you every month? Do you need to look at, well, maybe for some people, online courses are the great thing to do. Maybe you need to look at having another, you know, doing some teaching for a university that is going to give you some income that you're not having to do the whole push, push, push thing that we sometimes have to do in their own business. Is there, where can you guarantee at least something, even if it's just a hundred quid a year to begin with? It does go- help and it adds that's up. That's going to be there, yeah. Yeah. And so now, you know, the second book's out, so now I've got two books that will give me royalties every year. So you know, what's, what's the new book? Because you've... The, the, so the, the first book was called Being a Successful Interpreter. Yeah. And that was 10 chapters that you can read in any order. And it's just basically me trying to get interpreters reading research. The new book is for a wider audience. It's for anyone with any interest in AI, interpreting languages, um, anyone who thinks AI is going to take our jobs. <laughs> Amazing. It's called Interpreters versus Machines. And both of them are published by Routledge. Both of them, I will say this, if you love a book, one of the best things that you can do for your favorite author is to order their book before they come out because their place in the standings is based on pre-orders, yeah. not on sales afterwards and pre-order it through it and and bricks and mortar real life bookshop go into your local um i would say borders but they don't exist in the uk anymore you know go into your local bookshop and ask take the isbn with you and ask them to pre-order it because what happens then is one the pre-orders count towards your stats and two uh, if a bookshop is getting loads of pre-orders for a book into their actual stores, then they're going to think, I should put that in the shop. If they put it in the shop, someone walking by is going to see it and buy it. If we only ever buy from Amazon, 
then we're may creating an ecosystem that's reliant on people searching the right terms on, on Google or on Amazon. Okay, that's great, because I, I released a poetry book uh, last year, um, and it's, like you said, it's a great passive income, but that is something I'm going to be telling people, because I did not know that, and that would be uh, lovely if, if a bookshop actually ordered it in. <laughs> and, and, well, so also, all the bookshops that have websites, order through their websites, fine, I've got on my website, uh, on my... I keep giving people the link to the Waterstones pre-order of my book. Yeah. I mean, someone can pre-order the hardback if they've got 120 quid. I don't think very many people <laughs> will. Uh, the, the paperback's like 30, but it's, it's it's the second longest thing I've ever written. But it's it's chopped up into chunks. Anyone who's, fa- who's um, familiar with ni- early 90s computer games will understand yeah. the structure that I've done because <laughs> I've split it into levels like a computer game. Amazing. I've used that metaphor. I tell the story of the first computer. We- but it's when you understand that through the idea of a computerized society and, and you look at, you know, what do interpreters do? How do they do it? What do machines do? Um, what are the risks of, you know, walking down the street with your phone in your pocket and saying, you know, uh, hit the Spanish translate button and say, can I have a da-da-da? You know, there are risks with that, you know. Uh, the classic story of Google are selling their latest solution about you can order pizza in Italy with it. Great. But the machine's not going to tell you what happens if you ask for pineapple on a pizza in Italy. <laughs> not nice. Um, but, you know, th- that kind of, that that's there. It's called, so it's called Interpreters versus, uh, Interpreters versus Machines. Comes out sometime late December. But if you pre-order it now, it's fantastic. Um, Waterstones have it in the UK. Just go into book, nab the ISBN. I'll, I'll send you a link for yeah, the show of notes. Nab the ISBN off the Routledge website and just go to a bookshop with it. And they, they'll be able to order it in because they'll use the same people anyway. That's amazing. And, and that makes such a big... My dream, my kind of... The author side of me has this dream of one day having a book that, you know, I, I go through an airport and I see it on an airport <laughs> bookshop. Yeah. To, to it's so hard to get there, but to to see people you know buying through a bricks and mortar bookshop, keeping people in their jobs, getting authors on shelves, that makes such a big difference. And it's these little choices because the prices are practically the same. It's these little choices that make a big big difference. That's true. Um, the last thing I want to touch on because I know that we're going over now is um, you've already mentioned you're obviously really busy with your work the company, you've written a book, but you've also started a YouTube channel and you're involved in a podcast. You mentioned the 100 years of conference interpreting. I know you went over to Geneva for a live one of that. How do you fit all this in? Why take more on? (laughs) Okay, so um, let's take them all in order. Um, The podcast came first. That came out of a conversation with two of my friends, both of whom are called Alex. Yes, it is confusing for ages. I used to joke, until we got video on our recordings, I used to joke that they were actually just the same German guy who's making <laughs> accents. Um, and that came out, so the podcast came out of, there are subjects in interpreting that are traditionally taboo. In fact, subjects in the world that are, in, that are traditionally taboo. I'm so glad to hear people talking about mental health. I had a mental health episode two years into running my, my translation interpreting business. I know what that's like. Thankfully, I'm a lot better now, but yeah, I know. Um, so we, we created the podcast and said, you know, what is it that people don't want to talk about? Let's talk about those things to open up the conversation. We've done a whole, so many amazing episodes now. And that's, you know, it, it's one evening a month, mostly. A couple of times we, we, in some months we have more than that just because of when guests are available. But yeah. the episodes come out one a month. And that's, 
so it is still hard to find evenings and you have to negotiate but it's i have been amazed at the impact that that's had you know i walked into the conference in geneva and someone came up to me and said you know i've never met you but i would recognize that voice anywhere Ah, that's amazing no idea where they got the idea where they got the idea i have an accent but you know <laughs> I, when i go to conferences for work you know if, if it's a conference i'm speaking at people will often come up to me and say about the podcast i've had people thank us for certain episodes one episode really helped me so it is it's amazing the difference that it makes the youtube channel came out of like most of my projects come out of frustration the YouTube channel, um, I'm one of these strange people that when it comes to writing or recording, I do everything in bursts. So while I try to keep to the roughly one a week thing, let, let me just say that in most of my recording sessions, I'm changing shirts or changing jumpers, <laughs> so it doesn't look like the, the six episodes were recorded at the same time. Um, there are times when my wife will take the kids out and I will set up a tripod in our lounge and just record. I want to do some more complex episodes. I've got one in the can at the moment that I, I recorded outside. It's going to take a bit of work, but just doing five minute clips, talking about stuff. So I, part of it is to get more interpreters reading research and to show them why research really helps our practice. Yeah. The other half of it is to talk directly to clients. I know how effective video is nowadays, talking straight to clients, talking to them about uh, making interpreting more effective, why they need interpreting. I want to uh, start telling more stories about my own interpreting practice, because I've noticed when I tell stories of, you know, uh, a time when I had to hand over to my colleague because of how um, traumatic the content was, suddenly people listen and suddenly you go, oh, I didn't realize interpreting was interesting. You know? Um, so that, that came out of that frustration of wanting my fellow interpreters to hear more about research in a way that isn't the typical academic way, which doesn't work, and also wanting clients to hear more about interpreting. And then Geneva was came out of the podcast. We got an email from uh, Killian Sieber, who's the head of department out there. Absolutely fabulous, off-the-scale, brilliant researcher, probably the world's expert on how interpreters do their job um, in terms of psycholinguistics. Um, he really, what he doesn't know about interpreter cognition, you don't need to know. <laughs> the guy's brilliant. And he, he emailed the three of us and said, would you like to come out and uh, joint moderate the last big session of the conference? And we're like, great. He, you know, they arranged traveling expenses and there was small fee as well. And that was fantastic. So that was kind of working at the conference, but by the same token, I thought I'm going to be there anyway. They had an open call for what are called Pecha Kucha presentations. Okay. I've renamed them Pecha Torture because they're horrifically <laughs> hard. Um, 20 slides, 20 seconds each. That's not oh, how wow. I do talk. So I did a Pecha Kucha of some research that came out of my PhD that I did jointly with my former PhD supervisor, another brilliant guy called Graham Turner. And so I'm standing in front of I think five, six chief interpreters. Um, inter literally anyone who was anyone in conference interpreting was there, apart from a couple of people who I, re I really missed um, not having Elizabeth Deselius there. She would have been fantastic, but all the big wigs were there. Chief interpreters from the European Commission, European Parliament, all of that, UN people were there. Really highbrow shirt and tie conference. And I stand up as the first person in that setting talking about why we need to rethink the way that we study what um, stakeholders, what the people we're working with want from us. And it was a really strange feeling to stand in front of that audience in one of the rooms where my entire profession was born, having heard someone talk about the history of our profession 
and there's me, a guy from the west of Scotland, who grew up in a housing estate. That's amazing. It, it was it was a fantastic feeling. It, it's a totally god thing that we're even there and even here, but to to stand in front of that audience and to have people come up to me afterwards and ask me more about my research, that that was amazing. But what what has caught me more than anything is that hundred year anniversary, and then going from that to to yesterday going to talk about international business is the need to bridge the gap between what interpreters know that they do the difference we know we make everyone in the 100 year anniversary was talking about the commitment to excellence and how hard interpreting is yeah and and how we work hard and we need to look after ourselves and you know how we need to use technology better and all of this but we still need to resolve this disconnect between what we know about interpreting and what clients and users and stakeholders hear about interpreting when we can get them to hear the difference that we make with our work, we will never ever need to worry about machine interpreting ever again. Yeah. And it's about breaking, it, I'm sure it's the same in social media, is is you know what you know the results you can deliver, you know what you can do, but there comes a point where the only way you're gonna win clients is by stand, stepping over that threshold into their world and writing in their terms about the difference you can make to them. And when you can start doing that, you get like I got someone handing me their business card yesterday saying, you can solve my client's problems. That's when you know you've done it, not when you get a thousand retweets or a hundred likes or you're standing in front. I mean, standing in the big stages is great, but you know you've made it when you've made a difference to someone in the real world, someone who can't even spell your job title. That's when you know you've made it. That's the thing. That's the thing. And and we often get social media clients because the value in what we can deliver is strategy is the consulting side of how you should be posting, what tone of voice actually encourages people. How can you give value to the people that are that are listening? Because those are the things that generally people forget about and then spend all their money trying to sell a product and shove it down people's throats. And people are tired of that on social media. That's the last thing they want. Well, it's like the classic thing. You you connect with someone on LinkedIn and you get an automated email message <laughs> sign up for my online course. Exactly. Whoever thought that was a good idea needs to Go really back to keep, bed. <laughs> they need to sit down in a darkened room and think about what they've done. Yeah. You know, it's like they, they just need to go to their room and just, um, but that, but the problem is, is is when people start treating sales and marketing as targets instead of people, exactly. you've missed the boat. Yeah. And I'm learning myself, you know, I when when my website when the current version of my website was built, the, the designer said to me, Okay, what are you going for with your website? You know, what's your what's your kind of persona that you want to give over? And I said it's really tricky because what I want to be doing is to sound like you're approachable expert. And I said, normally what, what I see online is someone's either approachable or they know what they're talking about. Very few people do both very yeah. well. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and I'm still working on with social media and with the website and with everything is, is treading that line of being approachable and being interesting and being fun, but also making it clear that I know what I'm talking about. And sometimes that means that you have to write a post which says, which busts a myth. And sometimes people get upset. Well, there there's a an ethical aspect to you know how long can we allow people to think that interpreters are invisible? To go back to our, our earlier discussion, yeah. how long is it ethical for people to still think that? Well, probably not now. You know, if people are saying, or the other one is, um, I recently did a video on on inside interpreting. I did a, a video called "What Buyers Need to Know About Machine Interpreting Devices," 
and it's the only video on the entire YouTube channel which has a dislike. <laughs> and it's because I told the truth. And I know, you know, but the, the, the joke in our house was, yeah, that's probably one of the makers of the devices who'd seen that and go, yeah. don't like you. But you have to, we have a thing in Christianity called speaking the truth with love. And that's, you know, maybe that's the ultimate social media advice is yes, speak the truth, but please do it in love. It's true. It's true. And I think a lot of people could, I see a lot of people trying to do good on social media who unfortunately go about it the wrong way. Um, and I mean, we've, we've seen that through history. There's obviously always a time and a place to maybe push a bit more. But when you're talking to complete strangers who, who quite often are on your side and just have a difference of opinion, uh, the way to go about it isn't by beating them up on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, it's too easy to react to differences with hatred. And, you know, I, I spent six years on the board of my national association. And twice when I was on the board, someone said something unhelpful about interpreting. And they were both public, in fact, sorry, one was uh, someone said something unhelpful about the future of interpreting and he was a very public figure. Another time the government tried to get something translated and it was incredibly poor quality for such an important document. Now you have a choice when that happens. You can either grab your pitchforks and charge or you can do a considered response which says, okay, I see what you were trying to do. I understand where your thinking is coming from. I understand the challenges that you're facing. However, in this case, da 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 da, we wrote an open letter to the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales as an association. And there you're dealing with like the most senior lawyer in the country. You'd better get your tone right because you're not getting a second chance. And we actually got a lovely response back. And it's one of these things where because we got the tone right, the legal press suddenly went, oh, hold on a minute. We, we should be talking to them. And I ended up writing an article. You know, I'm not legally trained at all. I ended up writing an article in a magazine called The Barrister because they went, oh, someone's actually taking an interest and writing in a way that's not talking down, it's not dumbing down in any way, they're kind of giving us back the terminology that we are using and telling us stuff that we haven't heard before. Okay, tell us yeah. more. That's what people want, absolutely. That's what people want. And that's, what, that's why I've enjoyed this conversation and exactly what I'm trying to do on the podcast. I think there's a lot of subjects... And there's a lot of job titles that generally people know nothing about and that form a big part of our daily lives. And being able to talk about these issues, being able to talk about things that are more interesting than whatever's on TV or what the Kardashians are wearing or anything like that, uh, to me is a bonus. And uh, I really, really appreciate your time today. I've had a lovely conversation and I've learned a lot. It was great fun. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it. Interpreters vs. Machines comes out in December. Um, I, I think I've mentioned just about every social media channel I'm on. I actually got the honour recently. I searched my name on Google and I've got one of those little boxes now that they do. But yeah, it, it's, been a <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. And it's it's always fascinating the questions that people ask who aren't in your world. And, I, you know, my kind of end, end off sign off would be whatever someone does, go into your client's world or into someone else's world and see what questions they ask you. And I've learned more from being asked questions and asking questions than I have ever from standing up on a, uh, in front of people and lecturing them. 
the, the questions that you get, you actually often learn more from the questions that you get than the answers that you give. I completely agree. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for your time. Okay, see you later. Bye. Thank you for checking out that episode all of the links for Jonathan and the pre-order for his book are below as is the information for the competition I mentioned on the intro I learned so much on this episode and I found it really interested I really hope you did too if you've got any questions for me or any other questions you wish I'd have asked or any guest recommendations please please send them my way and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and could leave us a review that would be absolutely wonderful. Otherwise, just share the word, spread it around, tell people about the podcast. That always really helps. And if you enjoyed the episode and you're a new listener, a couple of recommendations of previous episodes you might enjoy. The most recent one with Nikki McGlynn, what is neurodevelopment therapy and how could it help you, was absolutely incredible. I really, really recommend it to everyone because I think it's something that is really helpful. And another one I actually really, really enjoyed recently was the one with Dr. Rick Lines. Is international drug control in violation of human rights laws? That was a really interesting conversation. So check those out and let me know what you think. And as always, catch you next time. Anyone who falls in love with any of those two tends to make the same mistake that they fall in love with it because of what it is. Because of the fact that, you know, we talk about cultures coming together and uh, fostering understanding and making the world a better place. And, and that's great and nice. But I've yet to meet a client that employs us to make the world a better place or foster understanding.